Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all of their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king, the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those whose hope is his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we come to these words and we pray that you would meet us in them. We ask that you would do beyond what is capable for us, which is you would touch our hearts. And particularly, we ask this morning that you would touch them with joy and light of the good news of the gospel. Would you do that, we pray, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So James, who is our senior pastor, structured this series, and he assigned the various psalms to those of us who were preaching. And I'm starting to get very suspicious that James gives each of us these passages with a purpose. So two weeks ago, Rob preached his first sermon at McLean Presbyterian. Now, even you're an experienced preacher like Rob, the first time you go to a new church, you have a little bit going on in you. And James gives him a psalm about fear. Last summer, having just moved back here from Atlanta and and dealt with the insanity of the D.C. real estate market, two months later, having finally found a place to live, and I get my first sermon, and it's on Proverbs and Envy. I thought, I've been real estate shopping in Virginia. I get envy. Now, I've got a psalm about joy. And suddenly, methinks, James doesn't think I live with very much joy. (laughs) And the thing is, he's probably right. I find it a whole lot easier to live out of duty or obligation or responsibility, almost any emotion other than to just live out of joy. And I don't think I'm alone. I talked to Carolyn Sinclair, Dr. Sinclair, on our staff this week, and she said, actually, joy is the emotion that we find it the hardest to just let ourselves experience. We're just not very good at joy. And Psalm 33 has a lot to say to us in that. Particularly, it says that we will find joy when we find it in God, not in all the other things we usually chase. That we'll find joy when we find it in God, 
not the things we usually chase. So we're going to look at that under three things this morning. A why, a when, and a how. Why joy is hard for us. When joy will be easy. And how we can have joy now. So first, why is joy hard for us? What is it about this? Well, it it begs the whole thing. The whole thing begs the question, what is joy? And this is where I'm supposed to tell you, well, there's a difference between joy and happiness. So C.S. Lewis titled his autobiographical account of coming to Christ, Surprised by Joy. And this is what he writes in the first chapter. I call it joy, which is here a technical term and must be sharply distinguished from both happiness and from pleasure. Joy, in my sense, has indeed one characteristic and one only in common with them. The fact that anyone who has experienced it will want it again. Apart from that, and considered only in its quality, it might almost equally well be called a particular kind of unhappiness or even grief. But then, it is a kind we want. I doubt whether anyone who has tasted it would ever, if both were in his power, exchange it for all the pleasures in the world. But then joy is never in our power, and pleasure often is. Now, theologically and conceptually, Lewis is right. We can intellectually make a distinction between happiness and joy, and it can be really helpful to point that out in our own lives. But you also need to know this. In the mind of the psalmist, there is no such distinction. Neither linguistically in Hebrew nor theologically in the psalms can you make any real difference between happy and joy. Happy is joyful and joyful is happy in the lexicon and in the theology of the psalmist. To the psalm writer, blessed equals happy equals joyful. They're terms that have overlapping meanings. And here's why we want to point that out. Some Christians seem unable to be sad enough about things that have gone really wrong in their lives or in the world we live in because we overread Lewis's comment and his distinction. Simply put, some horrible things happen in the world, and those things must be called what they are, and they must be felt for what they are. If you lose a child, you don't feel happy. You feel gutted inside in a way that you're never going to be able to fully explain. If you lose your home and you have to declare bankruptcy, you aren't happy because it's not a good thing. If you fail out of college and crash out and have to come home and get it together again, you shouldn't be happy. Even more when you look at the evils that prevail in much of our world. If Charlottesville doesn't make you sad, then you've got some serious and hard biblical work to do. It's not just that we need to call white supremacy evil and reject it. It is that, but it's more. If we are not torn up inside about it, if we're not sick in our gut, then we're not listening. A Christian who is banally and formulaically joyful runs the risk of never actually being in touch with this world or his or her own emotion. You run the risk of becoming the stereotype and becoming Ned Flanders. Because the simple fact is this world has fallen, it's stained through and through, and so are we. Now there's a caveat I need to put in right away. Some folks who have walked with the Lord for a long time are so far down the road of this psalm that they're able to see all of that and much more and still maintain perspective and still have a sense of joy because that's actually where the psalm is going. But many others of us aren't in that situation due to a spiritual maturity. We're there because we just don't know how to grieve. 
But this gets to why at its root for so many of us, it's hard to just let ourselves go and feel joy because there's so many awful things in the world. And there's so many things that probably will go wrong again, so we temper ourselves. We go self-protective. We limit our own joy just so we won't feel sad later. And the real irony of it is this. You and I were made for joy. We were made for happiness. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, one of the foundational documents of our denomination in our church, starts by asking the question, what is man? What's the purpose of man, the chief end of man? And it answers to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Joy, it's what God made us to be. You and I were made by a God who is our good father, and like every good father, he wants his children to be happy, to have joy. It's what we're made for. Without sin, joy is our natural state. And what that means is that you can never fully squelch the search for joy. What happens is that we won't let ourselves experience the deep biblical joy that's there for us, so we start chasing cheap sources of joy, cheap thrills that will substitute for a deep joy. Now, it's there in the psalm. We have to infer it. But look at all the things the psalm discounts as our hope. Look down at verses 16 and 17. The king is not saved by his great army, the warrior by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope of salvation, even with its great strength that cannot save. Those are all the things an ancient Israelite leader would have been tempted to look to for his source of joy. Look at my army, I can win. Look at my strength, I'm secure. Look at my horses and chariots, I've made it, I can relax and take joy. More generally, look back up at verse 10. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. We make our plans. We take great joy in the fact that they work. Except they're a false hope. In the poetry of Kid Cudi, I'm on the pursuit of happiness. And I know everything that's shine ain't always going to be gold, hey, but I'll be fine once I get it. Get it in, I'll be good. We're all chasing a way to get ourselves some happiness. Um, an example that's a very non-Kid Cudi example, but when I worked previously as a full-time professor, a book contract was simply essential. Even at a non-tenure school, the publishing of a book in your first few years is simply make or break in your life if you're going to go anywhere. So I pushed hard. Find the right publisher. Find the right proposal. Find the right idea, because I thought, once I lock down this book contract, I can relax and just enjoy this life I have. Of course, once I got the book contract, I was like the dog that caught the car. Now what do I do? i got to actually deliver this book. Okay, well, once I get the draft done, then I'll relax and have joy. Which, of course, turned into, once I get the proofs done, then the relax and have joy, which turned into, okay, what's the next book going to be? If you try to make your joy in your book publishing career, I guarantee you it is a treadmill that will grind you into oblivion. And it's the same thing in whichever way you're trying to do it. What are your plans for finding joy? Do you think moving up in the ranks and getting partner at your firm is going to suddenly get you there? Or do you think making varsity will get you there? Or getting that vacation home? Or getting out of your marriage? Or getting into a marriage? Or finding that partner? Or that second? Or that third? Or taking the next drink? We fundamentally try to take joy in our circumstances. And we try to manufacture and control those circumstances by creating the thing that's going to make us happy. We always think joy is just around the corner. And the next thing that we make happen. But the psalm says... If we chase joy, we're never going to find it. Look at verse 10 again. The Lord frustrates the plans of the peoples. 
We have all these plans, all these methods, but we're chasing the wrong thing. St. Jerome once said, the stronger you try to hold on to an eel, the more it slips through your fingers. And Tom Brady famously got this, a famous interview with 60 Minutes right after he'd won his third Super Bowl. And as you probably remember or not may have heard, he says this in his interview. Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think there's something greater out there for me? I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me, I think, God, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this can't be all that it's cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27. What else is there for me? And the interviewer asked him back and said, well, what's the answer? And he goes, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. Where are you looking for joy? What person? What drug? What deal? What income level? What behavior out of your kids? What job? What grade? What touchdown or state record? We're looking for joy in all the wrong places. And what you'll find if you keep looking long enough is that actually every one of those is ultimately a drug. In the end, every one of them is a drug that requires a greater and greater and greater dose until it destroys you. Because you and I were made for joy, but we weren't made to find joy in these things. But here's the great news of the Bible. The time is going to come when joy will be easy. This is the second point. When will joy be easy? The Bible teaches that we were made for joy. That it was once easy and that it will be so again. Adam and Eve began life looking into the face of God who formed them. Fully seeing their creator. Knowing God. And joy was not hard. It was everywhere because the world was made for it. The creation itself sings for joy to God and they were able to join in the song. And the great news of the scripture is that in Christ it will be so again. Now our Bible is actually a really odd book if you think about it, if I'm allowed to put it that way. You have two chapters, the first two chapters of the whole book, Genesis 1 and 2, that tell you about the world before sin exists. And then you have two chapters at the end, the last two chapters of the book of Revelation that tell us about the world after sin is gone. And everything else in between tells us about the world we actually live in, a world that is made to be good and joyful, but it's now marred and fallen by sin. But you and I know the end of the story, and the end of the story echoes the beginning, except it's better, because in Christ, our joy will be made complete. The world will go back to what it ought to be, what it was always made to be. One of the interesting things, if you look at this psalm, if you read closely, is you realize it's full of royal imagery. Look at verse 10. The enemies of the psalmist are actually nations. Look at verses 16 and 17. The king is not saved by his great army. This psalm is largely royal in context. In its original context, it's largely about a king, the king of ancient Israel, and his trust in God. And that shows us how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the hope of this psalm. Verse 10, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. Well, 2,000 years ago, the leaders of Rome, and particularly Jerusalem, sent our Lord Jesus up to the cross to kill him because their counsel was we must shut down this rabbi that's starting to claim to be God. The night before on, good, on Holy Thursday, verse 16, the king is not saved by his great army. Judas leads in the soldiers to arrest Jesus. Peter pulls out a sword and starts swinging. And Jesus says, put your sword away, Peter. Matthew 26. Don't you know that I could call on an army of angels to come save me? 
What was an army to an ancient king? It was his hope. It was his joy. It was his security. It saves him from death on the battlefield. And Christ, as the true king of the Jews, was tempted by Satan to save himself that way. And Christ instead laid it down and did what Psalm 33 calls for, which is to trust in God the Father, who saved him not through his great army, but through delivering him from death. Jesus Christ is the true king that Psalm 33 points to and calls for. And our scriptures tell us that that king, our king, is coming back. The Christian hope is that this world is not all there is. We often talk about eternal life, and all my non-Christian friends, when they hear me talk about eternal life, say, um, more of this? I mean, no offense, but my life is kind of hard right now and kind of stinky. I'm not sure I want eternal life, this forever. But eternal life isn't just more of this. It's a time of eternal joy. We were made for joy, and when Christ comes back, we will have it fully. So talking this week with Carol and with Dr. Sinclair, I learned a lot about the concept of primary versus secondary emotions. And roughly it works like this. We have some emotions that we feel straight up. They sort of drive the bus. And we have other emotions that are really more of a secondary result. So the easy example is anger. Anger is usually a secondary emotion. What actually happens is we feel something else. We feel, say, embarrassed. And then having felt embarrassed, we lash out at the other person in anger because it gets away from our embarrassment. But it's the secondary thing. Well, in this world we live in, in this current fallen world, joy seems to often become a secondary emotion. We pursue something else, and then we get joy. But when Jesus comes back, joy will be a primary emotion, even you might say the primary emotion. We will feel joy, and we will have no concern that the other shoe is going to drop. We will have no problem and we can simply throw our arms out and abandon ourselves and rest in his joy because it's going to be eternal. It's like we'll go through the wardrobe and we'll enter a new land where reality itself will change, where the world we know is fundamentally changed and the things that cause us pain and struggle and agony will just simply no longer be. The joy that's partial in this world will be full and eternal. Now, the way the Bible tries to explain that is the imagery of a feast. And for folks in this congregation, at least most of it, who've lived with food security our whole lives, and I know that's not true for everybody in this room, but if you have, it's hard to get that image. But put yourself back into the life of an ancient peasant in Israel. Your life is dependent on your crop. Your crop is dependent on the rain and whether or not it comes, and it often doesn't come. Many of your children have died in famine. You always live in fear of having nothing to eat. You know well the pain of hunger. You even know the malaise of being on the edge of death where your body is only doing enough to make your heart beat and your brain go and it won't even summon the energy to blink. And to that person, to give a picture of eternal life, the Bible says it's like one continual feast gorging yourself to abandon because you're never worried it's going to run out. That was the greatest possible image of eternal joy for an Israelite to hear. Now, what would it mean for us, for you and for me to grasp this, to have a similar image? I said earlier, C.S. Lewis titled his memoir, Surprised by Joy. Where have you been surprised by joy, even for just a moment? It happens when suddenly something delights you in a way that you never saw coming and just for a second you're a little kid again. You're just swept away by wonder. Now the adults among us, we recover quickly because we've trained ourselves not to experience joy. 
but it still sneaks up on you for just a moment. Here or there, where suddenly, surprisingly, you find yourself delighted. You know, for a parent, it's, also, it's often when your child starts to get it on something. So our younger daughter, Evie, has been learning to ride a bike. And so she's got one of these balance bikes. It's basically a bike without pedals so they can get used to the, the wobble. So we started with her on Monday, and she sort of wobbles around. And by last night, when I got home, Jill said, hey, we got something to show you. We whisked off to the middle school track because she was getting it. And watching her delight and watching my little girl get it, there was nowhere in the world I would have rather been for those few minutes. What is it for you? You know, for some people, it's the moment of a sunset or a mountain view or an ocean. For others, it's the moment that you realize somebody actually cares for you, you. Something somewhere has the capability to make you suddenly lose yourself in delight. What is it for you? Now multiply that feeling by eternity. That's what we have to look forward to when Christ comes back, that joy will be our primary emotion, that it will be eternal. Someday joy will be easy. But what if you're not joyful right now? I mean, I believe in God. I believe he's going to come back. And Carolyn is nonetheless right. I don't live with joy as a primary emotion in my life. Because we've said we live in a world that can so quickly dash it that we unawares think I'd rather not experience it at all than get so high and then get knocked low. Third point, how can we have joy right now? Well, we need to recognize that the psalmist lives in the same world you and I do. Look at the end of the psalm, the last three verses. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help, our shield, for our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Notice that the psalmist is waiting on the Lord. He is waiting out of a commitment for the joy that would come when God sets all things right. For our heart is glad in him, verse 21. In other words, happy. In other words, in the psalmist's lexicon, joyful. We live in a world where joy is often a choice and where our joy is incomplete because we wait for him to come back. But to say that our joy is incomplete is a very different thing than saying we're joyless now. Quite the opposite. The call of this psalm is that you and I should have joy now, not just in the future. In other words, we ought to be happy now. Not in the trite happiness of circumstances, not in the false happiness of idols, not in the strange idea of thinking that the achievements we chase or the success or wealth or reputation will make us happy but a deep gospel happiness, a happiness that breaks in from outside us, a happiness of the world to come breaking into our world now. And Psalm 33 gives us three anchors to help us see that process, three things that will cement that in us. If I know there's a happiness to come, I can handle the now, and I can even take joy in the current situation because I'm able to look forward to what's to come. So here's the, the way that it helps me to think about it. When I lived in Florida, central Florida, when I was in seminary, I would do most of my running up and down Red Bug Lake Road. Now, the thing about roads in central Florida is unless you hit a lake, you just keep going straight because there are no hills. There's nothing to go around. So you just figure out where you're going and go. And so five miles each way up and down the road. And I would run as close to sunset as I could just because it's hot. And I'd go out eastbound, and then I lived right almost where it dead-ended was where our apartment complex is. So I'm coming back five miles westbound on a straight road. 
And I realized real quickly, if I look at my feet, it's over. If you look down at yourself as you're running on that, it seems like nothing's ever changing. Psychologically, you are discouraged, you are hot, you're tired, you're worn out, because all you're doing is looking here. But if I learned I could get my head up and look five miles down the road at a glorious sunset, knowing that at the end of that road was where I lived in our apartment complex, I could see where I was going, it would even make the now happy. So how does this psalm help us with that? Well, the psalm gives us three pieces to help us see where we're going. So quickly, look first at verses 4 and 5. In verses 4 and 5, we see God's character. For the word of the Lord is upright. All his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. The psalm tells us who God is, and it tells us that he's good. We take joy because that is our God. Righteous, loving, faithful, steadfast, not capricious, not unknowable, a good father. Second, look at verses 6 to 9. We see God's power in his creation. Verse 6, he simply speaks and the world flies into being. Verse 7, he can gather up the ocean just like he's putting it in a jar. Verses 8 and 9, let all the earth fear him for he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. The psalm tells us about God's power that he has to only speak a word and it all happens. That's our God, powerful in control of all things. And then third, verses 10 to 19, you see that God's in control of history. Verse 11, his counsel stands forever. Verses 13 to 17, he is the one who delivers nations and upholds all the events of the world. Verse 18 and 19, behold, the eyes of the Lord are on the ones who fear him, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in the famine. You know, when you're running the Christian life and you're starting to look down at your feet, look up. At your God. Look where you're going and remember these three things about him. He's good, he's in control, and he's smiling down on you. This is our Lord himself. Hebrews 12 says that Christ, for the joy set before him, down the road, endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. And as we lift up our eyes and press on in joy, even in the midst of trouble, we're conformed to his image. Now, if you look closely, one other thing, you'll notice that the oddity is this is a psalm that's not even about joy. It's not what the first three verses lead off with. This is a psalm about praising God. Joy is the adverb, so to speak, not the verb. Look at verse 1. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. In many translations, that's the only use of the word joy in the whole psalm. Verse 3. Sing to him a new song with loud shouts. Joy is the reason and the method here, but it's not the command. It's the result of seeking hard after the praise of the Lord. And we get little snippets of this now. To use Lewis's phrase one last time, we are occasionally surprised by joy. And those snippets don't come when we're chasing it because that ends up failing. They're when we're not even chasing it and the order of the world suddenly takes us by surprise because God made it to be a place of joy. But we can cultivate and live in a gospel joy because we know where we're going and we know it's good and we know that the good is breaking into this dark world. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So even as we wait for the fulfillment of our joy when Christ returns, there are plenty of things that make us happy now. And if we know how trustworthy and how faithful Christ is, 
then our future joy becomes joy right now. That future happiness, which will be full, is guaranteed. And that means we can have a happiness now, even in the midst of sadness. And the key is simply this. Don't chase joy, but see it where it already is, in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because the one who has done all this will do the rest. And the call of the psalm is to praise him, because if we pursue praise, we get joy too. This is it. When we chase joy, we don't get it. When we chase God, we get both. So what are you chasing? Let's pray. God, our Father, we pray that in some small measure, you would help us to really appreciate the joy that you have for us in eternity in such a way that it would change us here and now. We are so bold as to ask that you would take people like us and bring joy into our lives. We confess we often find joy in the wrong things, but we know that there is a right place for joy, and so we commit ourselves to it and pray that you transform us through it, even this week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.